Welcome to Defragmenting, a podcast of Cairn University, promoting biblical integrity and thoughtful Christianity. Christian colleges and universities committed to biblical authority endeavor to help students see the connection between their faith and the academic subjects they're studying. This is sometimes hindered by the fact that some professors have been trained in settings where the implications of Christian doctrine for their areas of specialization were either ignored or significantly minimized. In an effort to help teachers for whom that was the case, Dr. Jacob Schatzer, Associate Professor of Theological Studies at Union University, wrote Faithful Learning, A Vision for Theologically Integrated Education, a book whose aim, he says, is to equip faculty to be key instruments in faithfully transforming students in all disciplines. Dr. Schatzer joined Dr. Keith Plummer to discuss the book. We believe this is a valuable conversation for all Christians who consider the cultivation of the intellect a necessary component of discipleship. Let's join their conversation now. I have a love-hate relationship with academic book catalogs. I hate them because they entice me to spend money, sometimes on books that I don't read, but I love them because through them I become aware of volumes that are of particular interest to me. That was the case last year when I learned about a forthcoming book since released that I knew I wanted to read. It was authored by my guest, Dr. Jacob Schatzer, Associate Professor of Theology and Associate Provost and Dean of Instruction at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. He teaches Bible, theology, and ethics, and has authored and contributed to several books, including Transhumanism and the Image of God, and his latest volume, about which I'm eager to speak with him, Faithful Learning, a Vision for Theologically Integrated Education, published by B&H Academic. Welcome, Jacob, and thanks for making the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, I was interested in the book because of uh, the topic, this idea of a theologically integrated approach to higher education. Uh, both of us are involved in that enterprise, and we are running in circles in which that idea of uh, biblical integration or some other terms and concepts that we'll talk about are frequent. But tell us a little bit about what made you want to write the book. Why did you think there's a, a need for something like it? Yeah, well, in some ways, I, I wrote the book because I wanted to think more about the things that I love most about higher education and and maybe remind myself why I, I love what I do and I love where I am. As I talk about really early in the book, I didn't really know a lot about this kind of education before coming to Union University as a student 20 years ago uh, and just being blessed by God's use of brilliant and godly professors in a variety of disciplines in my own life. And so that, that's always stuck with me as I've pursued doctoral work in theology and in ethics and have had opportunities to teach in various places. There's always been something about the Christian university uh, that draws me and, and has me transfixed. And so I love when we see uh, the connection between God's word and God's world. Uh, I love the, the hard and messy work of working through that. And in more recent years, as I've, I've taken an increasing role in faculty development here at Union, I realized that um, many of the colleagues that I've had as I've taught for the last decade or so 
if, if they come from some disciplines, they may already have some theological knowledge. They may, in, in many areas, have done a graduate degree in theology or in seminary or, or something like that. And, and faculty like that often were ready and interested and good at, at jumping in and seeing the way the faith intersects with their field. But there's also a large number of faculty who are godly Christian people who have, have spent their life in church. But maybe it's a, a new nursing faculty who has spent the last 10 or 15 years uh, in the hospital, and she's now teaching nursing at a school that wants to inspire her to integrate faith and learning. She's just not sure where to begin. Uh, it seems really intimidating. And and what I wanted to provide was a resource for that, that kind of a faculty member, a really kind of just beginning level approach to systematic theology that would kind of give the big, the doctrines and kind of the lay of the land. And in hopes not that it would be the last word on theology that they might ever read, but that it would be a reliable first word for that stage of their calling and career. And so in doing that, um, it led to this book. One of the things that's that's different about it is it's not simply a book of systematic theology. Uh, it is that. It's, it's as much as you can in a short book to cover a wide range of doctrines. Um, but I also have noticed that oftentimes faculty and other disciplines feel like Bible scholars or theologians are just coming to boss them around and tell them what they have to think and what right theology is supposed to be. And I just recall at various points in my own career learning profound and helpful things about God and his word from people in different disciplines and and recognizing that that Christians in different disciplines are actually they're, they're put somewhere by the Lord, and then they have a viewpoint and an ability to see something that itself is a gift to the church. So what I wanted this book to be was not only an opportunity for those new faculty members to be taught theology, uh, but also an opportunity for them to see, hey, maybe I have something to contribute to the church here. Maybe there's something I see as a Christian English professor that that Christians and other disciplines don't see, and, and I actually can help people see something true about God's world and God's word by being an English professor. And so mm -hmm. each chapter kind of has a some sort of reflection. They kind of take different formats, but basically having other faculty do that sort of thing, show where these specific doctrines begin to come into their, their field, but also how their particular field helps them understand them better. You touched on this already to some extent, but I would like to ask you to elaborate on it. What do you think are some obstacles to what you're calling theologically integrated learning? So you gave the example of the, the nursing uh, professors coming in and they've been working in a hospital. They haven't really been uh, challenged necessarily, maybe on an academic level or maybe even in the context of the church. Yeah. So what, what do you see as some of the obstacles to this? Yeah, I think that there are, are several obstacles, but two primary obstacles, I would, would say. One, it might not seem like an obstacle initially, but it's the, the obstacle of low-hanging fruit, in that most disciplines, especially in our professional disciplines, there, there's some clear ways that being a Christian in that field makes sense. For instance, with nursing, which we've picked on so far, the idea of, of serving the sick and the the wounded and and being the hands and feet of Jesus in that sense uh, is often just the first thing that will come out when you talk to faculty in those areas about what does it mean to be a Christian doing healthcare and those are good and true things uh, but oftentimes uh, faculty can can figure out how they want to talk about that and then that's done all right I've integrated my faith with my learning now I've 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 connected to mm -hmm. Jesus to my field now I can just go back to doing what I would normally do 
no matter what my faith perspective was. So that that low-hanging fruit isn't a, a problem. It's still fruit. The, the problem is there's also fruit higher in the tree. And so we need to both honor faculty in, in those kind of low-hanging fruit areas and, and affirm those. They're good, but paint something to kind of inspire them to climb higher. And so that can be uh, one obstacle is, is, is being content with initial answers. A second obstacle is that many fields of study are built upon assumptions that disagree with the truth about the world as God has revealed it to us, as I think would be one way to put it. And it can be really scary for a faculty member uh, when you have spent all this time trying to prove that you are an expert in a certain field, you went through a doctoral program, you went through interviews, you maybe have already had a part of a teaching career where, where you have tried to demonstrate you really have expertise in this field as a Christian. It can be very uncomfortable then to, to turn around and say, oh, hold on a second. Some of the things that every person in this field takes for granted actually can't be true if what the Bible says is true. And that's destabilizing. It's it's scary because it threatens your professional identity at some degree. And so trying to help faculty expect that to happen and to inspire them to explore it when it does without feeling like everything's going to fall apart. Yeah. Let me go back to your first point and then this one, because I had some quotations from your, your book on these, these points. And at one point, you talk about how it is that every discipline can connect with a primary doctrinal area, a basic understanding of a fuller scope of Christian doctrine, uh, positions faculty to do the kind of careful, faithful integration work that our students need. So would that be the low-hanging fruit, the, that with each discipline, there is a clear connection between it and a particular Christian doctrine where you can see how this relates? and that on account of God's common grace. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. And, and, and sometimes it's on account of God's common grace that they see it. Sometimes it is is integrated in with special revelation and particular approaches. But I, I think especially when you think about the natural sciences, for instance, there are going to be obvious connections to the doctrine of creation there, right? Because they're studying God's creation. They're 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 exploring and looking and and uh, whatever the the particular field is, they're they're really getting their hands dirty with the creation, right? And so that that can obviously be a, a first place that a faculty member goes is realizing, wow, if if I am a professor of chemistry, I should how does that relate to what I believe about the doctrine of creation? How does the doctrine of creation animate my views of of my field? But oftentimes, yeah, that then can become the the first step, the first connection. And, and then it's like, okay, that's enough. I've done that. That's more than anybody's asking chemistry professors to do at non-Christian institutions. So I've already gone above and beyond. Uh, I'm done. And so I want, you know, to hopefully inspire folks to draw, you know, further up and further in as, as one might say. And along with that, to see this as not a, a destination, but a, a journey with destinations along the way. So Right. It's not that, oh, it doesn't matter where you end up. You're just on the journey. No, no, it does. Like God has spoken. It matters where we end mm -hmm. up. But this is something that that I would hope, you, you know, as I'm I'm still on the the, the younger side of my, my faculty career. Um, I've been teaching 10 years. I hope 15 years from now, I'm still discovering things. And, and that's the mm -hmm. other piece that I want faculty uh, to, to kind of inspire them about the continued hard work of the life of the Christian scholar to, yes, find those things earlier in your career that you find, but continue to expect to find more and to celebrate them when you find them. 
On the other point concerning the assumptions that are in many places at odds with what God has revealed, I was so appreciative that you included this because it spoke to the temptation that is ours for maybe sometimes uh, the sake of not only the stability that you mentioned, uh, but also for, in some cases, it is for the purpose of um, respectability that we may want to play down yeah. where it is that there are particular tensions and outright conflicts. And I, I wanted to share with listeners just a portion of what you had to say about this. It is much easier to point out the places where our Christian faith connects to our disciplines and will be applauded by the broader academy or culture. But if we are honest and if we look, we will notice places where the Christian faith challenges the assumptions of our disciplines. We will not get applause there. And we are often tempted to downplay that in favor of the former. Part of faith integration means identifying these challenges and working creatively through them not just avoiding them. That I thought was so, so good. Well, thanks. I, th I think that that's one of the key, the, the key pieces that I want faculty to, to take from this approach is to expect those things to be there so that they're not surprised and that they don't feel too threatened by it. Like we should expect if we live in a fallen world that our disciplines for as good as they are, are still going to be marred and broken. And, and when we come across that brokenness, we don't need to be scared or surprised. We, we know that, that, that because of what Christ has done, all is being made new, and that includes our disciplines. Um, but we need to be willing to call those out, even if we don't have the answers, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's a key piece too, that, and why doing this sort of thing in the classroom actually disciples students better. Yes. For students to see from their faculty, hey, I, there's this disjunction between what you know, sociology tells us about uh, blank and 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 what we know as believers. And I haven't figured out the, I haven't made heads or tails of it yet. But I've just noticed that it's something's not right there. Like that's a that mm -hmm. is that is a great thing to demonstrate to our our students. Often our students are uh, when they look back and remember things. It's just as much the brilliant things you you knew as the times when you were willing to say, I don't know yet. They need that. They need to see that and. Um, and I think it better prepares students to, to live in a world that will always be sending them complex signals as far as what aspects of it are subservient to Christ and in line with Christ's kingdom and, and what elements are not yet. But helping them to realize that when they see it, you're seeing something that is just not yet bowed the knee to Christ. There's excitement in that. Yes. And as you say, that, that is a, a valuable part of discipling and teaching to say, I don't know. I'm still wrestling through this. And it's also beneficial for us. It's part of the forming of Christ-likeness and humility and us to be willing to say, though I am standing before you, I don't have all the answers. I don't understand how this fits together. I'm confident that it does within the, the plan and the creation of God, but I just don't fully understand it myself. As I've gotten older, I have come to realize the freedom and the value of uh, saying, I don't know. And so I, I really appreciate that. In the early part of the book, you do mention that concerning this idea of integration, there are some debates amongst Christians as to how are we to think about the relationship between learning and education and uh, the Christian faith. Among them, you mentioned questions about the adequacy of the concept and the terminology of worldview. 
which for many people might seem quite um, surprising because that has become such a part and parcel of so much of evangelical thinking, especially in higher learning. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the elements as to why that is in some ways, in some circles, controversial? Yeah, well, I think it, at one level, it can be helpful to just think of uh, worldview as a concept that has limitations, and and sometimes we forget its limitations. So I, I don't by any means want to deny worldview or even convince people that worldview language should be thrown out. Uh, it can work. We just have to be careful about it. And in a couple ways that we need to be careful about it here is we need to recognize that worldview is not something that we can like hit pause on and then tweak elements of, and then push play on our life again. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's how we treat the university experience. We we have these students who at traditional age come in around 18 years old, and yeah, it's an intense time of formation in their life. We, we see that from all types of disciplinary perspectives, whether it's just psychology or, or, or whatever the case might be in, in development. There is something unique about it. But we also don't just pause life and make all these intellectual changes and then hit play again after graduation. Worldview is something that we, yes, we can think about it intellectually, but we're also picking it up through so many sources, culturally, narratives, uh, commercials we see on TV. You know, there's just so many ways that our worldview is formed that I think that we're, we're too often uh, naive in thinking that we can so easily modify a student's worldview through the intellect. Now, I think that we can. I think that's a step in it. But I think oftentimes when we talk worldview, 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 we overemphasize the, the intellectual component. And so there are other terms that help get at that. And so some have maintained the terminology of worldview and just try to rehabilitate it a little bit in that way. And, and I'm, I'm fine with that. But what I want to help uh, folks see is that it's not just as simple as, as we sometimes have, have tried to make uh, that term in the way that we approach it, even with good intentions. Yes. When I read that, some people who came to my mind were people like James Sire, who modified his view or his definition of worldview because he, he came to realize that it was highly and overly cognitive. And he realized, I'm not even dealing with the affective desiring dimension that goes into our yeah. believing and so forth. And another name that uh, obviously came to mind was James K.A. Smith and some of his work. Now, he's been very critical about worldview, maybe I would say maybe excessively so, but I, did, I have appreciated what he has done with respect to the idea of these practices, these, what he calls cultural liturgies, and how they go into shaping our loves that if we just focus on worldview, we can run the risk of treating people as though they are simply intellects. And so... Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that a promising thing about that picture, and I love that language of cultural liturgies as well, is we can imagine individual academic disciplines as having liturgies of certain sorts as well. So that can become a fruitful avenue, again, for, for discovering some of this faith inter, uh, integration. When we say... Hey, the kind of the accepted practices of this field, how are they, how do they shape us to expect certain things, to look for certain types of answers and not other types of answers, to prioritize this and not that, and, and things like that? That's a good point. Another debate you cite surrounds the terminology of uh, integrating faith and learning. And again, that's common parlance for people who are involved in Christian education and even um, on a popular level. We talk a lot about integration. And as I read this, I thought about something that Nicholas Walterstorff, uh, the Christian philosopher, wrote 
years ago about his dissatisfaction with that metaphor of integration. I wanted to run it by you and then get your reaction. This is something that he wrote, I think it was 2005. And uh, he says, that metaphor suggests that the scholar is presented with two things, faith and learning, and that these two must somehow be tied together. And he says that, you know, that the idea of integrating seems like you're taking dissimilar things and putting them together. But then he goes on to say, I have never found what seemed to me the absolutely right metaphor. However, better than the integration metaphor is the metaphor of seeing through the eyes of faith. When you look at something, you look at it with your eyes, you don't look at it and then also at your eyes. What would you say in response to something like that? You know, I don't think that metaphor quite works either, because in this case, sometimes we do look at our eyes. Sometimes we do look <laughs> at our faith. Right. And so right. that's where you, you need something a little different there. But I think that what he's getting at is exactly the most powerful aspect of it for me, which is when you use the language of integration, you've already made assumptions. You've made assumptions that there's a separation and that you must bring it together for some reason. Now, on the face of it, that's true. We all experience our disciplines as, as separate from, from the faith, especially if it's not Bible or theology or something like that. Like we can think about them separately. Uh, but the language of integration assumes that separation. And if we're not careful, it can normalize that separation. So as Christians, if we're going to use the language of integration, we must, we must lay the separation at the feet of the fall and insist that the separation is not mm. good, and the separation is something that that God is working to overcome in Christ. And if we do that work, I'm fine with with integration. But we just have to be careful the assumptions right. that 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 language carries with it, and we need to rehab those assumptions. And, and also, I think that from the perspective of the faculty member, the language of integration also sounds like a lot of work. It kind of sounds like, yeah. <laughs> hey, you're really smart, so you figure out how these two things go together. It's like playing that Sesame Street game. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things, it doesn't belong. Yes. You know, the smart kids will figure it out. And while God does sometimes use our intellect and, and through his grace, help us figure those things out, ultimately, integration isn't something that any of us achieve. We don't achieve the integration of faith and learning. And, and one of my colleagues uh, here at Union, uh, Phil Davignon, who teaches sociology, uh, he said this in a meeting once. I don't remember when, I don't know where he got it, but I just distinctly remember him saying it because it impacted me. And he said, you know, integration isn't something that we do. It's something that we discover because all things are Christ. It's already integrated. It's not something that I've got to go out and figure out and make happen. It's true. And God, by his grace, helps me see it uh, and articulate it and point others to it. And I think that that's really, really necessary with the language of integration is that we, if we continue to use it, again, we just be careful about those assumptions and we be careful not to make it an achievement as though we're the ones who are making these things connect. That's very helpful. That is very helpful. Well, you said that your book is a, a introductory systematic theology. And after an opening chapter in which you deal with the roles of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience in the doing of theology, subsequent chapters, just for the sake of listeners to know what you cover, the doctrine of God, theology proper, creation, which we've discussed some, humanity, which I want to come back to in a moment, sin, the person and work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, salvation, two chapters, one on the nature of the church, the other on what the church does, the functions of the church, and then appropriately a, a final chapter on eschatology or the doctrine of last things. 
And for each of those, as you've mentioned, you have invited another Christian scholar to interact with it and how that doctrine informs their um, discipline and how their discipline may help us better understand that. How did you go about selecting the, the disciplines for each? Some of them, as we've already discussed, seemed easy, but then some of them I just thought, wow, that's an interesting connection. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, well, at one, there's kind of two approaches that kind of converged. On the one level, uh, you know, early in the drafting, I, I was pretty confident I knew some that would connect because I'd heard people talk about it before. And so I went to scholars in that area that I thought would be interested in, in helping me with the project. But the other thing that, I, that I've been blessed with, and, you know, this is, I'm in my third institution. I've been at Union for six years, but it's the third uh, school that I've taught at. And, you know, you meet people along the way and there were just people that I knew I've got to figure out how to get this person in this book uh, because I just love what they do. And so for some of those, it was more sending them the chapter and saying, I'm not sure if this, but like, do you see something here? Because that's what I did with each of them. I just I sent them a draft of the chapter and I said, hey, I just want you to read this. And I, I gave them some questions to think about uh, and, and asked them to take the reflection in the way that they wanted to. For So for some of them, it was things that they, you know, maybe already developed some things on. But for others, it was just trying to experiment with me and, and doing something that maybe they hadn't thought that much about um, and, and trying to do the very thing that I want this book to inspire faculty to do, which is continue to, to try to discover these things in places where they may be unexpected. Yeah. Well, I think you did a, a good job and it was very interesting and engaging to read these different perspectives from people in other other fields you know in your chapter on creation one of the things that you talk about is some of the conflict that we might perceive between uh christian faith and science and so i i was kind of expecting okay he's going to go with a scientist and you you went with an artist for for that chapter which is fitting too because i do believe that there is you know god is not only presented as this powerful um, architect, but, but he's an artisan. So yeah, that was really, really good. Talking about your chapter on creation uh, and the relationship between science and faith, at one point you say this, we should not feel the need to defend the Bible against the findings of modern science. God can and will defend himself and his word. When we find ourselves in discussions that seem to pit God's word against God's world, and our understanding of it, according to the best tools and thinking we have, we must realize that our unfettered zeal in defense of the Bible is sometimes bubbling out because deep down we feel sorry for the Bible and think we had better come to its defense. And, and when I read that, the question that came to my mind until I read a few lines down was this, well, how are we to reconcile not feeling the need to defend the Bible with the biblical commands and examples of defending Christianity's claims, are you saying that there is no place for apologetics? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let me try to, you know, draw that out a little more. And, and first of all, I think that that's a, an excellent thing that maybe I should have been more cautious about in my choice of language there. But uh, what I had in view was not so much defending the Bible as a prickliness and defensiveness about the Bible that I think Christians sometimes get that they actually get because they feel like uh, the caught kind of like how you, you know, maybe when you're a little kid and you, you got in trouble and you knew you actually did it. And that actually just made you defend yourself even more. 
creatively. Uh, and, and so sometimes I feel that way about the way Christians engage this debate is it's like they're they're going to such lengths and getting prickly and defensive. It's almost like, well, well, ah, maybe there is something here that that is a problem. Mm-hmm. So it's more more against that approach. And a corollary to that approach is the approach to defending the Bible that thinks, well, I can create the equation with biblical evidence that will make it so everyone must accept the Bible as I do. And I just, I I don't think apologetics ever succeeds that far. There is always a work of the spirit that is needed. Uh, And so I think in my, in my attempt to kind of cordon off those types of approaches uh, to uh, defending the Bible, I, I gave short shrift to the the good work of defending the Bible, which you're right, we, we should do. We should stand up for uh, Scripture. We should give reasons for why we believe uh, and, and things like that, but always trying to do so in a, in a way that's not defensive and in a way that realizes that we are not going to be able to argue anyone into the kingdom of God. Yeah, and as I said, as I read a few, I, I read a few lines, and I said, "Okay, he does deal with this." And so, but for the sake of, for the sake of people listening, I, I wanted to throw that out to you. It's in that same section that you say we should not feel the need to downplay the power of science or fuel suspicion of scientists, which I thought was a, a helpful caution. You want to say anything about that, or ways that you have? Um, seen that downplaying the power of science or fueling stoking the flames of suspicion of people simply because they are scientists yeah i I think sometimes that christians at least again the the audience for for this book is uh, maybe newer faculty who have not had the time to really think through these things so i'm trying to deal with what are often our initial reactions to things and i think sometimes christians who who have not maybe had a good experience with science in their own high school or college experience, or maybe they've seen uh, examples of bad science or overreaching science, they can be tempted to say, well, I just, I don't like science. I'm not interested in science because it uh, it is against the Bible. And so anyone who is a scientist must also be against the Bible. And then we get this, this kind of wariness that we don't, we don't need to have. And so I'm kind of trying to really just acknowledge that divide and that tendency. It's certainly not developed or drawn out very well, but, but there are places in this where it's almost just like I'm just trying to plant a little bit of a, a flag, like, okay, here's something you might want to come back to, just notice it. Here's something you might want to come back to, uh, just notice it. And that, that's one of those, is, is just recognizing that that can be a tendency Again, maybe not for the the uh, the faculty member even, but but really this this whole book is is aimed at the assumption that these faculty members are in turn turning around and discipling and shaping students, and so I su- definitely suspect because I've had students like this, I suspect these faculty members are going to have students who have that suspicion of scientists, and so uh, recognizing perhaps where it came from and and how to walk through it in a wise uh, and winsome way uh, is key. Well, on the, the chapter on humanity, you, you cover a lot of ground and you do so throughout the whole book. I was frequently just kind of astonished that he's dealing with a lot in a relatively short book. People, for people who are listening that haven't seen it, we're not talking about a massive tome. We're talking <laughs> about uh, an accessible paperback and, um, so it's it's nothing along the lines of the institutes or anything like that but i really uh, was intrigued by a number of the things that you had to say about humanity uh particularly 
having to do with the idea of how the Christian conception of what it means to be human is in many places so counter to what the cultural narratives are with respect to what it means to be human. And um, at one point you say that it's, before we start adding any qualifiers, it's necessary to understand the commonality of our humanness. Could you, could you speak to that? Yeah, I think that we, you know, culturally, we find ourselves, if I can and say that really, really broadly, Christians, non-Christians, when we try to describe who we are, we often find ourselves running to identifiers that distinguish us, whether that's, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a really big Cubs fan. All right. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm a fourth generation Cubs fan. I'm proud of that. That's steadfastness. It has shaped who I am. It will always shape who I am. It's right. Like, and that's kind of a silly one. There are obviously much more controversial identities that that people embrace and find meaning in. And I think some of those can be can be helpful. Sometimes we find ourselves finding our identity in our our sinfulness or our brokenness. I don't think that that's too great. Uh, but what I, I want to emphasize is before getting into any of those types of things where we we can talk about what are identities that could be embraced or not, we need to recognize that there's there's something about being human, being made in the image of God that, that reflects all of us and and or that we all reflect and and maybe those I- identities might help us reflect it in different ways uh but there is something there and and the reason that that's important is because that's a concept that our our the secular world has no room for uh because when you have an, a, a completely random evolutionary approach to what humans are we just we're, we're, we're never anything for long if you expand out long enough because everything's constantly changing. And, and what I want to, to help folks see is that when Scripture tells us that God created humans in his image, uh, however you work through interpreting Genesis and lining it up with timetables and things like that, you still have a, a special a creation where, where there's, something, there's something there. there. There's something definitive there. And theologians have always struggled to explain what that something definitive is, and I think we will always continue to struggle to explain it fully. But our culture has abandoned that and abandoned that there's anything besides social construct, who we are currently, what we want to be, and what we want to define ourselves as. And so they're missing the givenness of humanity. And and I want to help us all see that and remember that and remember that closely related to the word givenness is gift. Uh, you know, our humanity is a gift, which means, yes, we may all be called, you know, to to different types of lives, different types of following Christ. Uh, but there is a givenness. There is a gift that we all receive simply by being human. And, and and we live in a culture that increasingly wants to reject or reprogram parts of that gift uh, because we don't want to acknowledge that it's a gift to begin with. Mm. That is closely related to the subject of uh, one of your other works, which I very much uh, appreciated, Transhumanism and the Image of God. Yeah, you can hear some echoes there. I've I've thought about that a bit before. (laughs) Yes, um, but that idea that, you know, the vision of some, because there is the denial of there being any telos, there being any fixed nature, the idea that we can contribute to our own evolution and just keep on um, progressing, in quotes, to something that ultimately, if it were to keep on going, would take us beyond 
the bounds of humanity as we know it post-humanism. Mm -hmm. Related there, more related than people expect. That's one of the things I tried to highlight in that book. Most people think transhumanism, post-humanism, I don't have anything to do with that. It's actually intimately related to the story that our culture tries to tell us about what it means to be human, which is we can be whatever we want to be. Yes. If there is, if there's no such thing as human nature, if there is no fixed nature and we are simply fluid, then that would seem to be the, the logical conclusion. In, in dealing with humanity, you also talked about, and I was glad to see this, um, you also dealt with friendship. But before I go into that, because I wanted to say something, I want to ask you something else more. We're, we're in the thick of so much debate and conflict over the issues of sexuality. In that chapter, you said the, we can't stop, we can't start immediately with the idea of the Christian view of sexuality as opposed to the cultural view of sexuality. But even that, that is a product of that deeper question of opposing views of what it means to be human. Yeah, 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 I think so. There, there's, there's underneath those layers are these fundamental questions about the givenness of our humanity, the giftedness uh, that we have. It sets you up very differently, even in the, some of the most controversial and difficult topics related to sexuality. Uh, do we see our biological bodies as a gift that faithfulness means we receive even if difficult and that faithfulness means journeying with this gift? Or is it something that we seek to alter according to our own conception of our future? Those are very different approaches to understanding what we are as humans fundamentally and the gifts that God has given us. Yes. And have you found in your working with Christian students that though they may subscribe to you know, confession, they say, I believe that humanity is created in the image of God and so forth, do you encounter where it is and how it is that they may unknowingly be buying into the cultural narrative where they're really denying the the givenness and the giftedness of of humanity it, whether that's relation to sexuality or elsewhere do you encounter that yeah I, th I think that that we all really struggle with this language of authenticity which in our culture uh is a is a is a great idea that that folks like to point to be authentic be who you are but really, when you start poking into that, you realize how empty that is. And there's there just ends up being nothing there from a, a secular perspective. And so it's it's not a promising place to dive within to find who you are. You actually you're you're in that model inconsistent and kind of nothing besides what you want to be. And so it just turns back in on itself. And and often um, students don't see that they see the good of of something like authenticity. Like I, I was on a panel just this week with uh, with Rachel Jilson, uh, who works for Crew and does a lot of things with gender and sexuality. And, and she was mentioning that, you know, after all, authenticity is something that Jesus uh, emphasized, right? He, he was upset with the religious leaders for being different on the inside than they were on the outside. And so really, there is something good here that, that our culture is after with authenticity. Uh, but the problem is we we go about it in entirely the wrong ways and we look for the authenticity in the wrong places. And so I, I think that helping students see those connections, they feel like they know what they're supposed to believe about some of the flashpoint things, but because they don't understand the underlying beliefs about humanity, they then find themselves believing something over here that sure, they can still ascribe to, to the thing over on this other side, but they're believing something that's in conflict with what they're claiming but they don't even realize it because they don't see those connections. So I think that's part of the task with things like the doctrine of humanity is to show how that 
that consistent thread of the givenness of our humanity being made in the image of God, how it certainly raises many questions, but it also shows us that some questions are already answered or some questions just in a way don't make sense to ask based on what we understand about what God has said. Now getting to friendship, uh, I was so pleased that this was uh, in there because a lot of times when we're talking about the doctrine of humanity, we see immediately the connections about sexuality and so forth. But you said friendship is often taken for granted or ignored, but the need for non-sexual relationships remains an important expression of human relationality and need for community. Could you just say a, a, a word or two about that? Yeah, I think probably with with that, I'm trying to explore something that that I've only begun to see because I've had good friends. You know, I, I moved a lot growing up and I, I didn't have, I still don't have many friendships that trace back to my childhood years, but I have, I have good friends from seminary uh, and graduate work uh, in, in particular uh, who have, who have shown me uh, how to be a friend. And I think I'm a better friend now because they were good friends to me. Um, one of those is a, a theologian and ethicist named Nathan Willoughby, who teaches at Anderson University in Indiana. Uh and so I think in in approaching the doctrine of humanity, I've realized that there's got to be a piece of that there. And partly I've realized it because of its own, my own inability to cultivate that sometimes. And so it's been a a growth area for me and something that I want to, that I've come to see is 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 foundational and fundamental to who we are as, as human beings. And so uh, trying to, again, draw that in so other people notice it in case anyone has that same issue that I had, uh, putting that there and, and, and emphasizing that. Um, you know, the book, as you mentioned, it's much shorter than you would expect for being a systematic theology book. I did that because I know faculty are busy people and 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 Christians are busy people. So I wanted it to not be the last word, but the first word and first words often need to be shorter. Uh, but also I, I teach a class on Christian doctrine in one semester and, and that also feels like I can't fit enough in. And so really the practice of, of teaching and writing theology is is just having to be willing to to say things briefly and just kind of Okay, we, we've just got to move on. I'm sorry, but that's that's there. And so I'm glad that, that you appreciated that piece on, on friendship. Many times when people think about eschatology, they are thinking about charts, they're thinking about timelines and so forth. And while you do talk about some of the differences between views, can you say something about um, how does a Christian understanding of how things in this age are going to end and the age to come is going to commence. How does eschatology fit with, or how should it fit with how we approach Christian learning? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of what I try to do when I teach students on eschatology is help them reorient their thinking about eschatology, because most of us uh, when you first think about eschatology, it sounds scary. You know, I think a lot of this is coming out of there's there's a lot of stuff in the 70s, 80s, and 90s about eschatology and movies and all that that they just made it seem kind of scary. And so it's a surprise when I remind students that the book of Revelation was written to be an encouragement to believers who were suffering. So if we're understanding eschatology in a way that's actually making us suffer more or fear, we just need to like hit. <laughs> just like reset. <laughs> okay, we've done something wrong here. Um, and so so I'm far more interested in helping uh, readers reorient the doctrine of eschatology as a doctrine of hope rather than a doctrine of fear than I am slicing the bread on every single eschatological issue, um, but rather helping people expect that those those issues will bring hope. And, and that's honestly where the 
the eschatology chapter fits in closely with the the, the chapters on the doctrine of the church. And, and part of the reason I have two of those is I, I think we do need to understand what the church is, but often we misunderstand what the church is supposed to do. And I, I think the task of the church is to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand and to proclaim the need for Jesus to enter, for folks to enter that kingdom. And, and we proclaim that kingdom by the things that we say, but we also proclaim that kingdom by acting like it's true, the things that we do, and recognizing that, that even as we prepare for an end that only God can bring, the call of the Christian in the church is to always act with certainty that that end is on its way. Uh, and so living in light of the righteousness of the kingdom of God, living in ways that point to the deep truth of that kingdom. I, I tell students, you know, Christians don't just feed the hungry because it's a nice thing to do. We, we feed the hungry because we serve a king whose kingdom has come in which there is no hunger or thirst. <laughs> so we're going to say that. We're going to show it in ways that point to that ultimate fulfillment that 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 Christ has promised. And so I, I think that that's a, a much more helpful way to orient our lives and our callings as believers in light of the end times. And, and that's why I drew on uh, an engineering colleague for that, because I think sometimes uh, in things like uh, engineering or technology, we can we can shift into thinking we can build a utopia. We can solve all the problems. And so I, I wanted to to get someone who who works in a field where they do solve a lot of problems, do a lot of wonderful things. And, and you can you can you know there are people who have clean drinking water now because of Christian engineering students who go and do missions and 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 the very real things. But at the same time, Christians are not utopians, and we always expect that there will continue to be brokenness. Uh, we can we work hard. Uh, to overcome the effects of the fall because Jesus has won that victory and calls us to displaying that victory. But at the same time, we know that we wait for him for that victory to come in its fullness. I'm sure people can hear from your responses and the passion with which you offer them that this, though being an academic book, is also one that invites readers to contemplation and worship. And that's one of the things that I so appreciate about it. I could see this as having great value to individual scholars, yes. But I also hope that this will be a work that Christian faculty members will read and discuss together within and across disciplines. I encourage people involved in Christian higher education, both faculty members and administrators, to read it. And I can even see portions of this being of benefit to parents and students. I'm very grateful for it and for your labor in writing it. The book is Faithful Learning, A Vision for Theologically Integrated Education, by Dr. Jacob Schatzer, published by B&H Academic. Jacob, thank you again for taking time to talk with us about it. Thank you, I appreciate it.